Today we are talking about the historical and political context of Shakespeare's play Macbeth. You know, it's funny. When we think of Shakespeare, we often think of him as an Elizabethan dramatist. And, well, what images does that word Elizabethan conjure up for you? Perhaps the movie... Shakespeare and love, feisty gentlemen, women with revealing bodices, wordplay, witty rejoinders, perhaps some swords clashing, declarations of love in the moonlight. Or perhaps you see the hard-drinking but very humane jokester Falstaff. It seems that popular images of the Elizabethan period rhyme with romantic, witty, feisty energy. And of course, Elizabeth was a charismatic, clever and relatively liberal queen. And it was during her reign that England's navy became so strong that it was able to defeat the might of the Spanish Armada. And of course, also during her reign that Literature and poetry were in full flower. But Shakespeare was as much a Jacobean dramatist as he was an Elizabethan one. I mean, for example, let's consider that while Shakespeare was 30 years younger than Queen Elizabeth, he was almost exactly the same age as King James. And Macbeth obviously belongs to his Jacobean period, a darker period, a period where the clouds gather, where the forces of war begin to assemble in Europe. There is increasing dissension in England. And with the new monarch, a fixation on the new idea of Great Britain. James assumed the throne in 1603, and in May of that year, Shakespeare's theatre troupe was rechristened as the King's Men. In other words, their new patron was the freshly crowned king. He gave their theatre group a royal charter, and indeed, Shakespeare became a groom of the chamber, like some of the other players. It was a kind of royal recognition. And on occasion, Shakespeare and some of his fellow players would go to court and take part in official engagements in their capacity as grooms of the chamber. (laughs) But of course, their main responsibility was to provide theatrical entertainment to the court, and so it was only natural that Shakespeare, their principal writer, should be attuned to the background, the interests, the personal history, and the preoccupations of the new monarch. For me, there are five key historical and political facts to be noted. 
Number one. When he ascended the English throne, King James had already been King of Scotland for more than 30 years. One of his key political goals was to join England and Scotland in the Union of Great Britain. But this project was resisted by English parliamentarians who, surprise, surprise, were suspicious and distrustful of their Scottish neighbours. Indeed, the reactions to King James's project remind us that distrust of foreigners has been a feature of the English character for centuries and certainly predates Brexit. Anyway, he was a Scottish monarch pushing union but finding it very difficult to win English parliamentarians to his cause. During the reign of Queen Elizabeth, Shakespeare had written English history plays. When James assumed the throne, he shifts his attention to what we can call British plays. Macbeth is one, King Lear is another. Now, for me, the second key point is that King James was someone who was deeply interested in witchcraft. Oh, yes, you heard that right, witches. He had, in fact, presided at the trials in Scotland of many women accused of being witches. This is quite startling for us, but the fact is that James personally supervised not just the trials, but also the torture of some of these women. One of the books that King James wrote during his lifetime is called Demonology. It was published in 1597 when he was 30 years old. It is a book in which he provides a classification of demons, i.e. of devils, according to the methods that they use to torment people or indeed to torment corpses. I think that the existence of this book helps us measure the gulf between the Jacobean period and our own time. It seems that part of James's interest in witchcraft was an interest into seeing into the future. And of course, that was a very useful skill for anyone trying to be a monarch at that period in Europe when poisoning, kidnapping, murder were all standard fare. And in fact, historians point out that there are a number of instances where James used his intelligence to expose frauds involving so-called witches. He certainly was not a fanatic in this regard, but he did believe in the devil. And in his book, Demonology, he writes, The old and crafty serpent, being a spirit, easily spies our affections, and so conforms himself thereto, to deceive us 
to our rack. Now, isn't that a wonderful word, rack, spelt with a W, W R A C K, and which appears in the old English expression rack and ruin? When you actually think about James's sentence from demonology, it's a neat plot summary of Macbeth. Through his vessels, i.e. the witches, the devil spies out Macbeth's affections, in other words, his secret longings, and conforms himself thereto. In other words, he makes events occur that encourage Macbeth in these secret longings and ambitions. He deceives him until Macbeth is ruined and destroyed. My third key ingredient in the historical context of the play Macbeth is the gunpowder plot of November 1605. What was the gunpowder plot? It was an attempt by a group of Catholic dissenters, and by dissenters here we mean people who refused to accept the Church of England set up by Henry VIII, Elizabeth's father, people who wanted to see the Catholic religion restored to England. In November 1605, some of these dissenters tried to blow up Parliament. The plot did not succeed, it was thwarted. But if it had succeeded, the entire leadership of the country, from King James, Queen Anne, Prince Henry, Prince Charles, through the nobility and political representatives and heads of the church, all the people gathered for the state opening of Parliament, they could all have been wiped out. An extraordinary trauma. And indeed, the only thing I can think of in my lifetime that is in any way comparable in terms of trauma is the trauma of 9-11. But let's just try and imagine James's reaction that day. The gunpowder plot emerges, of course, from religious divisions, but it was also an attempt to murder him, a Scottish king, and his family. Now, one of the gunpowder plotters was a Yorkshireman called Guy Fawkes, a man about six years younger than Shakespeare. And scholars have pointed out that along with Shakespeare's plays, of course, and the King James Bible, the only cultural artifact created during the first decade of King James's reign that still matters now, 400 years later, is the story of Guy Fawkes. It's commemorated every 5th of November in English-speaking countries. And I remember as a kid in New Zealand how we would make a guy and drive our guy round the streets in a cart and ask people for money. And we would use that money to buy fireworks. Frankly, we did not have much understanding or much interest in the history. But it was marvellous to be able to get money and fireworks and go to a huge bonfire on the evening of the 5th of November, where the guys were burnt, all extremely exciting. 
course, in 1606, when Shakespeare was writing Macbeth, the gunpowder plot was still very much present, not only in people's minds, but before their eyes. When the plotters were brought to trial, King James, his wife and his son were all present in court. They were hidden away from public gaze behind a screen, but they were there. The trauma had been profound and they had to try to understand it, to put faces to it, to explain it to themselves. And another of the people connected to the gunpowder plot, like Guy Fawkes, later executed, was a Jesuit priest called Father Garnet. Garnet came from a good Derbyshire family. He had been a brilliant student at school. He travelled to Europe when he was about 20. He became a Catholic priest. And later, when he was around the age of 30, he was sent back to England so that he could minister to those people in England who had remained faithful to the Catholic Church. When I say he was sent back, he was sent back, of course, in secret. He had to live a clandestine life, and he had many aliases, one of which was Mr. Farmer. And for those of you who are very familiar with the play Macbeth, there's a famous passage in Act 2, Scene 3, when Macduff arrives at Macbeth's castle late at night, but he cannot get in because the doorkeeper, the porter, is drunk. When the porter is roused by Macduff's furious banging at the door, he says, Knock, knock! Oh, here's a knocking indeed! Who's there in the name of Beelzebub? Well, well, <laughs> here's a farmer that hanged himself on the expectation of plenty. Here's an equivocator who committed treason enough for God's sake, yet could not equivocate to heaven. Ooh, come in, equivocator. If you look at the porter's speech, they're not easy to recognise, but scholars, of course, can do this, or the notes in your edition of Shakespeare can help you. There are a number of references to Father Garnet, who had defended himself during his trial with subtle arguments, his efforts in this regard becoming a byword in England for equivocation, or what we might term sophistry, sophistical reasoning that a person uses to try to exculpate themselves of a serious charge. As I say, the gunpowder plot was thwarted. No destructive attack took place on the 5th of November 1605, but it very nearly did. And the fact that disaster came so close seemed to change something in the culture. We spoke about the gathering clouds of the Jacobean age compared 
to the more freewheeling Elizabethan age, and this change is registered in Macbeth. The play is written in a time of fear, a fear of plots, fear of regicide, fear of equivocation, of people that swear their duty to your face while they imagine plunging their dagger into your stomach. Evil lurks in the wings, shadowy, deep in the vaults, ready to rise up and engulf us. This fear is there, and perhaps that is why, at the end of Macbeth, the restoration of order does not feel at all convincing. To defeat evil, is it enough to display the head of a traitor and equivocator on a pole? Is it enough to vilify this dead butcher and his fiend-like queen? The fourth factor I would like to mention is the straight-out cruelty of the period. People were executed, yes, but we're not talking about lethal injections or simple hanging. The punishments of the time were much more grisly. People were hanged first, but cut down while still alive, then disemboweled, still alive, and finally beheaded. I said that the aftermath of the gunpowder plot was still very much present in people's minds and before their eyes, because at the beginning of 1606, in the period immediately following the gunpowder plot, when Shakespeare was at work on Macbeth, the heads of two of the ringleaders of that plot, Catesby and Percy, were on public display in the streets of London. Put simply, the gunpowder plot produced nightmares. It tapped deep into Jacobean political and religious anxieties. It distressed the nation. It stopped people sleeping. We thought I heard a voice cry, sleep no more. Macbeth does murder sleep, the innocent sleep, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care, the death of each day's life, saw labor's bath, balm of her mind's great nature's second course, chief Nourisher in life's feast and cried. Sleep no more. Glamis has murdered sleep, and therefore Corder should sleep no more. Macbeth shall sleep no more. Finally, let's not forget, and here the parallel with our own historical moment is striking, it was also a time of pandemic. 
throughout the latter years of Elizabeth's reign, and especially the early part of James's reign, bubonic plague was a recurring nightmare for people in England, and particularly in London. In London, whenever the deaths exceeded a certain number, the theatres were closed and they were shut for months in 1606. So, to summarise, distrust and suspicion among British politicians defending different political projects, that suspicion and distrust immeasurably heightened and intensified by the terrible trauma of the gunpowder plot, the sense that traitors were quite literally lurking under the floorboards, the attempt to kill a king, the difficulty of believing in anyone's allegiance, a climate of fear, the spread of infectious disease, a belief in the reality of evil, a belief in witches, and what I might call the resigned acceptance of cruelty, cruelty which warps people's hearts and warps their judgments. Now, if you throw into the mix a bunch of devilish prophecies, a dead child, a wife who wants to take revenge on fate, and an ambivalent husband with a tendency to nihilism, Here we have the ingredients for this harrowing play. (laughs) 